So the year was 1971, and it was a dark period in the history of our nation. Uh, the very fabric of the nation seemed to be frayed and, and at risk of coming apart. Watergate and Nixon, the White House papers, uh, the war in Vietnam raged on, and thousands around the nation marched in protest. The news was filled with stories like Charles Manson and police corruption and guns in Munich and bombs in Washington, D.C. There seemed to be no end to the conflict, no hope of unity and peace. We were a nation desperately wanting and needing peace and hope and healing. And one organization came up with a plan to change the world. Let's watch. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Yeah, that's going to be stuck in your head all day. You're welcome. It's helpful for me, uh, this is a little bit before my time, not by much, but it's helpful for me to understand the context into which this was presented. This wasn't just a sugary sweet commercial for pop. They were presenting this in real ways as sort of an answer to the world's problem. Like somehow if we all just came together as from different races and different ideologies and different continents, and we all just lived in one home that was furnished with love and we raised apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves for some reason... I don't, I don't know what that's really about, but if we could do that, Coke could fix everything because it's the real thing what the world wants today, right? It's the real thing. It's interesting. Real in what sense? I mean, the world that they're actually presenting here sounds a whole lot, has a striking resemblance to the world that Jesus had described to his disciples, a world where he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms a picture of a world where they could live together in harmony and unity for eternity. A world where there was no more death and no more war and no more strife and no more tears. A world with no end. It's like this commercial is sort of a shadow of the picture that Jesus had promised was his plan for the world. They co-opted Jesus' message and inserted Coke as the thing that was going to save the world. Well, you know, 40 years later that Coke didn't change the world. They made us all a little bit more diabetic. <laughs> Obesity. Uh, thanks, Coke. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Coke, actually, just so we're clear. But we know they didn't save the world, certainly. Uh, and so 40 years later, they've kind of changed their message, their whole approach. Let's watch this as well. Here's the thing about Diet Coke. It's delicious because I can. Different message, right? And I know I'm on sacred ground with some of you uh, who love Diet Coke. Uh, don't send me emails. That's totally fine. But I want to unpack this just a little bit because it's such a huge shift from the message that they had had previously. And I think it's such an interesting commentary. We can learn so much about ourselves from the people who are trying to market to us. Right? It's such an interesting picture of the world we live in. The actress says, in, in what might be the laziest commercial ever, uh, the actress says, here's the thing about Diet Coke. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. Life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard. But okay, I mean, just do you. Because I can. <laughs> That's the basic premise of this commercial. And it's such a different picture than, than the picture of us running a turtle dove farm on a hill somewhere. <laughs> they're not even trying to position this as anything about peace or unity. Basically, they're saying, yeah, we know this product is more a chemistry experiment than an actual food product. 
we know that basically it's proven that this stuff is super unhealthy and actually contributes to disease and obesity. We, we know that some people with fancy letters behind their names like MD say we shouldn't drink it. But they're not the boss of you. If it makes you feel good, do it. Just do you. Because I can't. I mean, it's overt. Because you can. They've abandoned it's the real thing because they know it's not. It's a shadow of reality. It's, in some ways, a distortion of reality. As humans, we're created with these real, natural, God-given hungers and thirsts and appetites. And God also provided a way for those, a means by which those appetites can be satisfied. Satisfied by, by food and by beverages that have real nutrients that, that provide for us health and sustaining life. And diapop is an imitation of what's meant to be real. It has no nutrients. It's not food. It's chemicals. I'm going to get emails. And, <laughs> and when we sustain ourselves with artificial things, over time, what looks like a low-calorie, cal healthy choice can actually lead to significant unhealth in our lives. Now, like I said, before you write me emails about how the science is all faulty and Diet Coke is awesome, uh, I don't actually have a problem with Diet Coke. You drink, you do you. Because <laughs> you can. But I think it's worth looking at because I think, like I said, it's a picture of how we do so much of our life. Like, life is too busy to eat, uh, to cook, and so we just eat fast food and we eat processed meals and we're eating in the car on the way to the game and, and life is crazy. Life is too busy to exercise and so we go on crazy diets. Life is too busy for romance in our marriages, and so we turn to the internet for intimacy. There's all kinds of places in our life where we are choosing the artificial over the real. We do it with community. We settle for an imitation. Life is too busy for real relationships, and so we binge watch other people's relationships on Netflix. Think, think about this. We've replaced real relationships in our lives, not with watching other people have real relationships, but by watching other people have fake relationships on TV. There's something kind of crazy about that. Life is too busy so, for real friends, and so we live in a virtual world. We even have a category for this. We'll say, to, you know, hey, do you know so-and-so? And they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, we're Facebook friends. Facebook is now an adjective. <laughs> that means not real. Right? It's a thing, and we're okay with it. Facebook is this place where, where we kind of present these exaggerated versions of ourselves that make our lives look awesome. Uh, you're probably aware of the, the trial or the, the Mark Zuckerberg uh, testified before Congress this week, and I heard one commentator saying, who cares if they sell all our data that we gave them? None of it's true anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and we probably all have that one Facebook friend who occasionally gets a little bit too real and shares some of their own struggles maybe with, with depression or concerns they have about their kids, or cracks they start to see developing in their marriages. And we're kind of uncomfortable because they've, they've sort of broken the unspoken rule that you're supposed to keep it light and, and fun and not be a bummer. And so after a couple more of those posts, you simply unfollow them so they don't bum you out. And if another friend gets too political, you can unfollow them. And if they post too many pictures of their cat, you can unfollow them. If they post too many things that aren't interesting and they're getting in the way of you scrolling faster through more interesting things, you can unfollow them. We've gotten to the point where we can pretty much customize our experience of people. 
To never have to read anything we don't like or hear viewpoints that we don't agree with or interact with any of the friends that we don't want to. We can only interact with the people that we want to have as friends. Just like real life, right? Of course not. It's artificial. It's a version that is virtual of relationships. And it's sort of based on reality, but it's not real. In subtle ways, in insidious ways, it starts to reshape our real life. However, like we said so many times in this room, the science is now so clear. They've established so clearly the link between the time that we spend on social media and the feelings we have of depression and anxiety, of feeling alone and isolated and inadequate. And yet we keep going there. It's interesting to note. I'm not bashing Netflix, Instagram, Twitter, Fortnite. Anybody know who Fortnite is? Every parent of a middle schooler. And some of the adult men in the back know what that is. (laughs) I'm not saying you shouldn't watch a movie now and then. I'm not suggesting we all throw away our smartphones. But I think that we have to say that when the imitation things in our life, when the artificial things in our life start to take over the real things, the authentic things that are meant to bring us sustenance, that are meant to give us life... I think we need to at least be aware of it because at some point it begins to rewire our brains. It begins to reshape our appetites. And just like food and beverages, we have these real, natural, God-given cravings, desires, and appetites for relationship. To be in a place where we know people and we are known. But rather than going for what really would satisfy us, what would really sustain us, all too often we go for sort of that quick fix, the endorphin hit of scrolling through Facebook and Instagram. And I think these, these quick fixes aren't just a shadow of authentic community. I, I think they are a distortion of it. And over time, they can become toxic to us. I think church is one of those places that can become virtual community in our lives. A place where we present maybe our idealized version, an exaggerated version of who we are. Like we have perfect marriages and perfect kids and perfect faith and we just agree with everything and, hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? A place where we wouldn't and maybe couldn't break the unspoken rule that you're not supposed to talk about real stuff. You're just supposed to keep it light and not be a bummer. A place where having the wrong political view or the wrong ideology can get you unfollowed. A place that's kind of based on reality but isn't real. So our experience of community in the church can often feel just as empty and hollow, and shallow as Diet Coke. And we can engage and somehow be left feeling alone, and isolated, and inadequate. Just like social media. And I think sometimes church leadership, you know, church organizations can contribute this. We can turn community into something that we market to people like, hey, our church has got this flavor of community and our flavor is better than their flavor and you should come and experience how we do community. Or promising that if you come here, you'll just magically experience better community than you would at a bar or a club or uh, that other church. So people come and they have this great experience at first in a kind of a honeymoon period, but over time the shine wears off and even that community starts to feel a little false. So I think that's something that we as church leaders, you know, me and the staff and, and the elders and all that, we need to be aware of that. Uh, and when churches offer just sort of a play nice, present yourself well, keep it light, don't be a bummer community, 
we're offering a shadow of what authentic community actually is. So that's something we need to be aware of. And I think there's something that we, as a church, we as the people who are forming and shaping this community, me and you, need to also look at this perhaps for us. Listen, here's the thing about church. Just do you. Because you can. It's the message we hear virtually everywhere else in our life. So it totally makes sense that that's what we bring to church, to community as well. And you can unfollow a church just as easily as you unfollow friends on Facebook. There's always another church where you can find people who think just like you and talk just like you and have the same politics in you and the same worldview as you and the same skin color as you. And so we hop from church to church trying to find real, authentic community until we're just tired. And we give up and we watch Netflix and scroll through Facebook and drink Diet Coke. It's a real, natural, God-given craving for community and it's not getting satisfied in the church. But maybe the problem, at least in part, is in us. In you and me. And in, in what we bring to church more than it is a problem with the organization of the institution Itself. And so therefore the solution isn't going to be finding the right church or the perfect church or the church that's finally nailed it 2,000 years later. Maybe there's a shift that needs to happen in us. We are they. Julie Gorman, in her book Community That Is Christian, says it this way. Experiencing true community in church often remains the elusive gold ring. We say we want community, but we want it in terms we create. Having it our way frequently means God's gift of community is skillfully adjusted to harmonize with cultural values. The rewards of individual freedoms, the power surge that comes from being self-improved and self-sufficient, compete to reshape the gift into light community that doesn't require too much nor add too much weight into our lives. And thus the search for being connected goes on. Is that what we're doing? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been going uh, through this series we're calling the mission. It's the mission that we believe God has given us as a church. It's who God is calling us to be. It's the purpose for why we exist as a community. We rolled it out a couple of weeks ago. It's that God would be doing this in us, that we'd be more people, becoming more like Christ in authentic community. And today we're looking at that last part, the inauthentic community. I think it's kind of a fun word play that inauthentic community sounds a lot like inauthentic community. See that? It's funny. But I, I think it's, it's worth asking, which are we going to be? Um, are we going to be just another place that's trying to market ourselves? And, or are we actually going to do the work of becoming real and continuing to become real? Are we just a mission statement that's clever marketing to position ourselves to draw more people to the sort of pseudo-community that's sort of dressed up for church? Or is God calling us to more? The Bible is our source. And the Bible is absolutely chock full from beginning to end of stories and pictures of what authentic community looks like. I would argue, in fact, that the idea, the theme of authentic community is a theme that is perhaps most primary throughout all of the book, from Genesis to Revelation. It is a picture of who God is. It's a picture of the life that he's calling us into. This fall, we're going to be looking at this in more depth. Today is sort of an overview. We're looking at it in more depth as we walk as a church through the book of Acts, looking like what does community that is Christian, community that is following God, look like, and what impact does it have on us, and what impact does it have on the world. But today, we're going to look at one example from the book of John, an example of how Jesus defined 
authentic community. I would invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, I want you to know that we would love to send you home with one. We've got Bibles at both our exits, and you're welcome to take one as a gift from us. So John, chapter 13, uh, basically this, this section of this book is often called uh, the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus knew that his time on earth with his disciples was very limited. It was coming to the end, and that soon he would be arrested and killed. And so he gathered them in this upper room and had one last conversation. They gathered around a table, around a meal, and what we sometimes call the Last Supper. And this is Jesus saying, for the last three years you've walked with me. For the last three years you've heard me teach. For the last three years you've seen me do all these remarkable miracles and signs. For the last three years I have revealed the heart of God to you. And now before I go, before our time is up, I want to just tell you these are the things you must not forget. These are the things that you must carry forward. I think it gives uh, special significance to these words because they really are his last to them before he went to die. Chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So there's the context. They're sitting around a table. They're having a meal, and Jesus knows that the end has come. And he also knows that one at the table is going to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. John has a number of these so Jesus statements. We looked at one when we talked about Martha a few weeks back. It says, Jesus had been given all authority in heaven, all authority in the universe. So, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. After three years of, of ministry together, this is sort of, this is, it all built up to this. This is the tada. This is condensed down to the, the brass tacks. He has all authority in the universe, and Jesus uses that authority to humble himself and take on the role of a servant, of a slave. Washing feet was the servant's job. It's interesting that John includes this, this kind of strange detail that Jesus got up and took off his robe. It's kind of a weird detail. Like, why would he have done it? Did he not want it to get it wet? Well, one, one commentary that I read said that um, typically in a Jewish home, the Jewish servants would have worn their robes. But if it was a Gentile slave... They would have taken their robe off and simply worn a loincloth. And they would tie a towel to that loincloth as a symbol of purity that they could use. That's a detail that we miss. But what Jesus is doing here is so much more than simply taking on the role of servant. It, it appears, at least, that he's presenting himself as a slave and Gentile, as an outsider, it would be unexpected. It would be shocking for his followers. Scandalous, even. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Peter immediately resists. He immediately says, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're our rabbi. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to be king. This is supposed to be a victory dinner. And you're at our feet. Making yourself look like an outsider and a slave. 
And yet that's the picture that Jesus chooses to give his disciples of what authentic community looks like if they're going to be his followers. It looks like taking on the role of a servant. Taking on the appearance of a slave, an outsider. And then even more scandalously, he tells them that they should continue to do this for each other. Verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. This is how Jesus defines what authentic community looks like in his kingdom, with him as king. And it's countercultural and it's shocking. And for his disciples and perhaps for us, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's interesting for me to, to remember that Jesus wasn't asking them and do this, wasn't asking them to go do this for other people. Like, go out and start a foot washing ministry. He says it to them that they should do it for one another. These 12 men who sat before him, these 12 men who had followed him for three years, these 12 men who constantly bickered over who was going to be the most important when the kingdom came to be. These men who knew each other's flaws and foibles and faults. These men who, who had probably been aggravating and bugging each other for three years. These men who came from radically different worldviews and, and political parties and histories and socioeconomic statuses. You've got zealots who fought against Rome and you've got tax collectors who conspired with them. You've got fishermen and doctors. You've got people from across the spectrum. And he says to them, all right, turn to the guy on your right and wash his feet. I think they would have preferred if he had said, go do some stranger's feet. But he didn't. Why? Why would he say, go and wash each other's feet? I think at least in part, it's because it is virtually impossible to make foot washing a power play. It has to be done from a place of humility and submission where you physically put yourself lower at the feet of the person whose feet you're washing I think it's virtually impossible to make it a test of who's in and out, and Jesus doesn't. There's no test to see if any of them fully get this and fully understand and are completely on board. In fact, it looks like they weren't, and they didn't. And Jesus does it anyway. He includes all of them before any of them even get it. I think it's worth noting that John, the author, wants to make sure that we understand that Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus and who would betray Jesus, is present at this meal, and that Jesus makes himself a slave before Judas, knowing full well that Judas had betrayed him, would betray him, and it would lead to his death. And Jesus says, that's a picture of what community looks like in my kingdom. It's hard for us to even get our heads around, but he models it for us, then he commissions his disciples to do it for one another. So we're going to do it to each other right now. Guys, bring in the basins. Everybody take off your... No? Okay. That'd be crazy, right? Because Jesus said to do it. We don't actually have to. Just do you. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. <laughs> but if we did, I think I could do that. I mean, I think I could wash your feet. What's far more uncomfortable for me is the idea of one of you washing my feet. I'm not really a touch guy, and so this one's kind of ruled out. It just seems horrifying to me. I don't go to the Y for fear that one of you is going to see me in a bathing suit. I certainly don't want you seeing my feet or touching them. 
In fact, if we were going to do it, I would want to have an opportunity to go and, and wash my feet in advance, you know, so that they would already be clean when you wash them. I think for me, the much more difficult thing than being asked to do it for someone else would be to have someone do it for me. I think that's part of the beauty of this exercise. We talked about this the other night as our small church, and a couple of people shared their stories of, of having experienced foot washing and the way that it brought them to this sort of self-consciousness, and it was uncomfortable, and they had to kind of wrestle through what this dynamic was that they were experiencing with this other person. And I think that's part of the invitation that Jesus is giving us in this, is to realize there are ways in which we categorize people. There are ways in which we have power over and power under, and he invites us to wrestle into that and say, those are the dynamics that work themselves out and need to be worked out in my kingdom. I think part of what he's saying is authentic community isn't about you. He says it gently. But in a world that says, just do you, Jesus says, it's not about you. Stop trying to have authority and power over each other, determining who's most important. Stop trying to position yourself to look good and get ahead and have a perfect marriage and a perfect family and perfect vacation pictures. Instead, serve one another and be vulnerable enough to allow others to serve and love and care for you even in the places that are stinky, even in the places that are private and scary and hard, even in the issues like addiction and marital problems and mental health. That's a picture that Jesus is painting of what authentic community looks like. And it's kind of scary because we would have to be willing to get real, real, not artificial real. I got an email this week. That was sent to me and another leader here at, at ECC. It was sent by a relatively new person. And, and the subject line was a mostly non-dorky, sarcastic email. So I had to clarify, like, is it, is it mostly non-dorky but still sarcastic? Or Anyway, and here, here's what it said. I just wanted to drop you a note and say how great it's been to be at ECC. Oh, I should clarify. This person had, at the last couple of church experiences, gotten kind of beat up, kind of chewed up. And so when they came here to give this place a try, they came with real trepidation. Um, is this going to be another one of those experiences? I just want to drop you a note and say how great it's been at ECC. This last year of transition has been a tough one, both for me personally as well as for my family. You both have been a great encouragement. It's been so great being a part of a church that cares for each other. I came in pretty guarded, but the community ECC melted that away quicker than I could have imagined. As I started to think about it on the way home tonight, I was getting a little misty in the eyes. You're both awesome, and it's great to be a part of ECC with you. And with that, I'll stop oozing emotion. It was a guy, so you have to qualify anything real you say. I share that, um, not to pat ourselves on the back, which now that I say that out loud, it could easily sound that way. Um, we, we don't get this right all the time, and you, and you guys know that. Um, I share this story to illustrate that this person came in bruised and broken and wary, and because, and could have easily stayed on the sidelines, could have easily just stayed in a safe place, in a guarded place, and stayed on the outside looking in. But instead they chose to lean in and to bring all of themselves, even the doubts and the questions and the fears and the trepidations, to bring all of those things in and share them openly. And as a result, this person got to experience healing and restoration and health in authentic community that they would have never experienced on the sidelines. 
We want to be the kind of community where people can come and bring all of themselves, even the messy, broken stuff, even the incomplete understandings, even the questions and doubts and hurts, and find restoration and healing and love. Yes, uh, they need to be willing to bring it, but perhaps more importantly, we need to kind of create the environment where it's safe to bring it. We need to be able to create an environment where people can trust that we are trustworthy. We need to be a place where the stories we tell aren't all neat and sanitized and safe. A place where we can talk about words like depression and anxiety and addiction. A place where people don't feel like they have to come all cleaned up before they can enter in. Where they don't have to pre-wash their feet. Henry Nouwen said, we all need a place safe enough to embrace our brokenness, our failure, and our inability to cope. And in the midst of torment, a place to again discover life. I think church can, for so many, be just another place in our lives. Maybe the place where we most need to present ourselves as perfect, and we got it all together, and everything's going great, and our marriages are awesome, my kids are awesome, and how you doing? I'm doing. But that's just a shadow of what church should be, of what authentic community looks like. In fact, I would argue it's a distortion of it. Let's not. Let's not be that place. And not just for our own sakes. My, my wife and I, when we were first married, uh, I worked for a little startup company called Caribou Coffee. You've probably heard of it. And really, truly, I was there back in the very early days where the founders would come into the stores regularly. And it was an amazing time to be a part of a company that just had so much energy and so much fun and so much vision and such a great culture. And so I worked one million hours a week and got almost nothing for it in terms of pay. But it was really, really fun. It was an amazing corporate culture. And one of the perks of working there is, of course, I got all the shift drinks I wanted. I think it was supposed to be one. But we'll stick with, I got shift drinks. And we could take home a pound of coffee every week. And so we didn't have any money, but we had lots of good coffee. But I knew that Caribou didn't exist so that I could have free coffee. Right? There was a much bigger purpose that drove them. It was a much bigger purpose that shaped the culture that they had created. And as a result, I got as a side benefit to experience great coffee. It's not in a perfect analogy because mine never are, but I think it's a little bit like authentic community in the church. Right? I mean, we don't exist to build community for our own sake. We don't exist to build that experience for ourselves so that we get to have great relationships. There's a bigger purpose. There's a place to write this in your notes. Authentic community isn't even about us. And again, that sounds kind of harsh, but I think it's what Jesus is saying. Let's read on. Jesus goes on and says that the kingdom community that he's prescribing isn't even ultimately for the sake of his disciples. Verse 33. Dear children, I will, only be, with you. I will be with you only a little longer. So now I'm giving you this new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. He doesn't say love each other so that everybody gets to have love and we can all be equally loved and then it's just a loving place. It's so that the world can know your disciples. The purpose for their foot-washing love for one another is so that the world would see that they are Jesus' disciples. Earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus said that he didn't do anything except what he saw the Father doing. And then he did that. And that includes this. Jesus is saying this is a demonstration, a practical application of what the heart of God looks like. It looks like lowering yourself and becoming a servant and appearing a slave and washing the feet of someone else. That is what it looks like when we radically 
love. It's the kind of attitude that Jesus had and he told his disciples to have so that the world would know the heart of God. Yes, they got to experience authentic and wonderful and blessed community. But it wasn't primarily for their sakes. It was a byproduct. They got to experience it. It was for the sake of the world. We sometimes get that turned around. Like we build a great community, and we love it because we get to go really, really deep with each other, and that's awesome, and maybe a little bit will spill over. Our goal can't be to build community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Community isn't the end in itself. Love is. The kingdom of God is. The revelation of the heart of God is. Radical love. We can't put the cart before the horse, but there's a tension in there. Some of you are probably thinking, like, so is he saying we should have community or we shouldn't have community? Like, how do we do it? And if we can't guarantee that it's 100% authentic, then we shouldn't even try. And it's, there's a tension there. I, I put it this way. Community is not a commodity, and therefore we can't make it. We can't market it. We can't sell it. And yet it's the number one way that Jesus says we'll demonstrate to the world what he looks like. That, that's a tough order. He, he's telling us to do something that he knows we can't. Chris pointed out last week that it's, it's relatively easy to attract a crowd. We could just hang, or two weeks ago, uh, we could just hang a free beer sign and we get a huge crowd, like best attendance ever. But it wouldn't be community. He pointed out that, you know, hiding yourself in a closet, just reading your Bible all the time, may in some sense make you more like Christ, or at least more knowing more about Christ, but it has nothing to do then with actually being an authentic community with each other. And then we read here that, that apparently being in community can't even be something that we can create by our own power. There's a place to write this in your notes. Authentic community is spirit work. Eugene Peterson wrote, Americans are good at forming clubs and gathering crowds, but clubs and crowds, even when, especially when they're religious clubs and crowds, are not communities. The formation of the community is the intricate, patient, painful work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot buy or make community. We can only offer ourselves to become community. And I think that speaks to some of the tension. This isn't something that we, by our own power, can create. Because if we, by our own power and our own plans and our own programs, create this, it is just another shadow, another imposter. It is just the same kind of community that the world can do. What he's saying is this is something that God does in us. It is his spirit at work in us. And this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus, who had spent three years teaching and pouring into these disciples. Jesus, who was the greatest teacher that ever lived. Jesus, who modeled for them and gave them examples of what this looked like and was the best modeler ever, knew that his disciples couldn't build the kind of community that he was calling them to build. It was impossible. Chapter 17 uh, is the end of the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus uses it to say that he will send his Holy Spirit to, to be a, a protector and to empower this building. And then in chapter 17, he prays to God. He knew that they couldn't do this. And so he prayed that God would do this in them. If I would do this in them, let me, let me read it for you. 
Now I'm departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are in perfect communion together. He's saying, God, make them one with us just like we are. Jesus is asking the Father to protect them so that they would be united in authentic community just as the Father and Son and Spirit are united. And they can't do that without God's help. He goes on and his prayer isn't just for the 12 men in front of him, but it's for us as well. Now I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And they, be, and they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. There's that so. It's the why. Not just so that they might experience really good buddies, but so that the world might see. Verse 22, I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you will love them as much as you love me. It's for the sake of the world. And then Jesus, by the power of God and not just our systems and programs, the love of God will be in us. He ends that section in verse 26 by saying, I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Father's love will be in them, and I, says Jesus, will be in them as well. This brings us to our last point. Authentic community that is Christian is incarnational. In the same way that God incarnated himself in the body, in the person of Jesus, Jesus embodies himself in us. Authentic community that is Christian is incarnational. It's not just a better version of a Facebook world that we can customize to experience only those who we want to experience. It's not a fantasy sugary world on a hilltop where we're raising turtle doves. Julie Gorman, in that book that I referenced earlier, says it this way. We are distinct as people of God because we are made to live in dependence on the head and interdependently with the diverse parts of the body. We are made to need God, but also to need each other. Community that is distinctively Christian will have group dynamics that are healthy, but will it embrace more? community that's distinctively Christian will host the presence of God in the midst of it. It is God himself who makes community possible. His presence is catalytic to the experience of togetherness beyond human endeavor. That last phrase, beyond human endeavor, it's more than we could possibly do. If we washed our feet or others' feet every single day, it still wouldn't accomplish it. This is something that only God can do us do in us. We are united because we are in community because God is in us and there's no community in the world like it. And I think we can genuinely experience that sort of community here on a Sunday morning. Like this story that I shared, this person came in and began serving right away and as a result got to experience remarkable community. But just like it would be kind of bonkers for us to try to do foot washing in a room this size with this many people, it's difficult to go to the places that we need to go to with each other in community on Sunday morning. If this one hour a week is all you got, then it's probably not going to do it. And you were kind of on the sidelines. We, we, 
started back in October, this thing called Small Church. And this isn't meant to be a commercial. We started this thing called Small Church, and about 150 adults, that's a lot of us, are doing this. We're, we're doing this experiment. We're trying to figure out how do we go deeper? How do we get realer? How do we gather around tables, just like Jesus and his disciples did, to talk about the real things of life? To go beyond the pleasantries and actually be involved and engaged in shaping each other in Christ-honoring ways. And we're not doing it perfectly, but we're taking those steps of trying to figure out how do you do this more? How do we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit? And if you would like more information about that, I would love to talk to you about that. But the key is, it's finding your people. It's finding a way to go to a place where we can begin to have these sorts of dialogues, address these sorts of issues. We can position ourselves to be made into that kind of community. Yeah. I'm going to stop there. We've got a whole lot more of this we're going to be talking about come this fall. This is meant to just be sort of a preview of that, but it's who we feel that God is calling us to be. And Chris illustrated in the first week, it's relatively easy to draw more people. It's relatively easy to try to find ways to individually grow and become more like Christ. It's relatively easy to, to make a sense of kind of community. But to do all three of those in a way that's actually drawing us closer to God, closer to one another, and modeling for the world who God is, that's big. That's a God-sized mission. And so let's go together right now to God and ask Him to be doing that in us, to be making us one, like He and the Father are one. Jesus Christ, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the vision that You've given us of what it means to be Your follower. That love is at the very core of who you are and of what you want us to experience and what you want us to bring and model and demonstrate to the world. That's an amazing task. And yet, God, for 2,000 years, we're still divided. We're still figuring out how to do this. God, do this in us, we pray. Help us to position ourselves in in such a way, to humble ourselves in such a way that we allow you and the others in this room to speak into our lives and to shape us to bring healing and restoration to the darkness, to bring light and hope. Do that for our sakes, but even more importantly, for the sake of this world, for whom you have such tremendous love. Give us that love for each other and the love for the world. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.